Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Powerful worship set this morning. Um, and when I, when I think of, when I think of worship, uh, you know, I think every, everything we do is an act of worship and should be a sacrifice of praise to God. Um, I was sitting wrestling, not on the front pew, but the second pew today. I changed it up a bit. Um, and um, I feel impressed and, and I know you're going to think I'm weird, but that's okay. Uh, I feel impressed that some of you may have come in this morning with a lot of burdens, uh, a lot of struggles, a lot of um, different things that you're wrestling with or against. And I rarely, if ever, do this, but I feel this prompting by the Spirit that we need to release some burdens. Um, I can't make you do that. Just as I can't make you not sin, I could present the word to you as clearly as I know how to do it, but it's on you to fulfill God's word lived out through your life. But I feel impressed that this morning, and and my wife has done this a time or two before, where she talks about how you, when you open your hands, it's as if you're willing to receive something from God. But this morning, I want you, if you would be willing to, if you don't have bursitis or arm issues or those kind of things, to do this with me. And I want to say a word of prayer over you. You don't have to, don't, I don't want you to feel manipulate. Don't do this if you don't feel like you want to do this. But if you are able to do this, hold your hands out. And this is a release. There's something about physically doing something to where you're saying, God, I'm going to give this to you. I cast my cares on you because you care for me. I think one of the things that's holding our church back, and I'm not just talking about North Maine, I'm talking about the church and our culture, is we carry too much. We carry more than we've been asked to carry. We make a mockery of what Jesus did on the cross when we carry what Jesus nailed there. So let me say a word of prayer over you if you're willing release whatever you've brought in with you today at the foot of the cross. And I want the I pro, Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. Those of you at home, you're not forgotten either. If you would do this with us, because I believe the Holy Spirit could be as present with you as he is with us in this place. Father, I don't know why as humans... We carry so much junk in our lives. You knew that we had a problem with that, which is the reason why you sent your son to this earth to die on a cross, to take away the sin of the world, our sin, our burdens, our baggage, those things that we carry around that weigh us down. And God, this morning, we release those things to you the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who is the great I am, the holy of holies, 
the one who is the Prince of Peace, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. And Holy Spirit, now we welcome you into our lives to take up residence in us, to fill the places where those burdens once lay. Fill us with joy overflowing, a peace that passes understanding, and more importantly, fill us with your unconditional love and help us to love the way that you love because you first loved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Today, we come to the conclusion of a series entitled Peace in the Promised Land, and we've been journeying with the Israelites in the Old Testament, and uh, we've come to the point now where they have kings that rule over them. Today we're looking at the story of King David, and we're going to look at specifically the idea that peace can only come through confession. This is a hard topic because we don't like to confess when we've done wrong. Pride oftentimes overrides our sensibilities and will not let us admit when we've done something we know we shouldn't have done. But I want to talk about this today. Confession isn't easy, but it's necessary. And I believe some of the reason that we carry a lot of these burdens in life is because we have certain things in our lives that are yet unconfessed either before God or to one another and they continue to hold us back from experiencing the true peace that God wants to give us through Jesus Christ. We look at the story of David today from 2 Samuel chapter 12 and we'll get there in a moment but it's where the prophet Nathan confronts David about a sin that David had committed. If you remember at one point in time, just prior to 2 Samuel chapter 12, David had sent his troops out to battle, as many kings do in the springtime, because nobody fights in the winter, it's too cold. And so the, as the kings are going out to battle in the spring, David this time, for whatever reason, we aren't told, he stays behind at his palace. Maybe he's fought enough battles by this point in time, and he thinks, I deserve a break today. And so he goes to McDonald's. <laughs> Just kidding. That's not funny. All right. But maybe he's decided, I've put in my time. I've put in my effort. I can let my commanding officers do this. So he stays behind. What we notice is oftentimes when we are idle is when the enemy likes to creep in. <laughs> and so in his being idle... It's not that he would just take it. It's okay to have a break and to take a vacation. But in his being idle, he's up on his balcony of his palace there in Jerusalem. And he looks out across the vastness of the city of Jerusalem at that time. And he sees a woman bathing. Now, she wasn't just taking a bath. What she was doing was a ritual cleansing after her menstrual cycle. No joke. It's in there. Don't get upset at me. But she's doing a ritual cleansing, as all ladies would do when they had finished the cycle. And he's seeing her. There's probably, uh, there may be a servant there with her helping her. Who knows? But he calls one of his servants and says, who is that? 
And his servant tells him who she is. He says, go get her for me and bring her to the palace. So that's not the first mistake. The first mistake was becoming too idle to allow the enemy to creep in with temptation. Secondly, he goes a step further. So think of it this way. When I'm tempted, I have a choice. Right? Yes, you do have a choice. I don't know. It doesn't feel like it. You do have a choice when you're tempted. God always provides a way of escape. And so instead of taking control of the temptation and the thoughts to do what he knows according to God's laws and commands he shouldn't do, you know what he says? Bring her to me. And so he puts into action the sin in his own mind. He sleeps with this woman named Bathsheba, who is another man's wife, actually one of his soldiers who's out at battle to make matters worse. And he thinks, okay, I'm done, sends her home. Well, she sends message back, and how long does it take to find out you're pregnant? Those of you at Life Choices, about six to eight weeks, yeah, around in that time. So six to eight weeks later, after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba, she sends message back. I'm pregnant. As most guys do, who do a one-night stand, find out that the girl is pregnant, he freaks. And he starts to concoct a justification in his own mind how to deal with the problem that he's now created, which has resulted in one of his soldier's wives getting pregnant by his own seed. What's he going to do? So he begins to scheme and concoct this great manifest uh, story that will protect him from being found out as having broken the law of God that actually demanded death according to the law of Moses and so he sends for Uriah Bathsheba's husband come on home take a break Uriah comes back at the king's command and uh, King David is overly friendly with Uriah hey how's it going out there pretty rough yeah okay well you You've earned a break. You're a good guy. I want you to go home to your wife. Well, David is told the next day that Uriah didn't go home to his wife. Instead, he slept in the servants' quarters at the gate of the palace with the servants. David finds out, and he's not happy about this. And so what does he do? He's like, well, plan A didn't work. Plan B, I'll get him drunk. Think this is king of this is the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. This is not after God's own heart. So what does he do? He gets him drunk and then tries to send him home. But there's enough soberness in Uriah that again he sleeps in the servants' quarters at the gate of the palace. David finds out the next morning, and he is incensed with anger because Uriah isn't going to do what he is trying to get him to do. Interesting note. 
when they are in the midst of battle, God's Israelites, God's people, it was not something they were allowed to do to go home and sleep with their wives. They were to remain sexually pure while a battle was going on. Now I want you to think of Uriah and his integrity in contrast to David. Do we have leaders like that in our country today? I digress. And so what does David do? He sends for his commanding officer. Or he doesn't send for his commanding officer. He sends a letter to his commanding officer through Uriah with the kingly seal placed upon this scroll. And Uriah doesn't realize that it's his death sentence. So he finally sends Uriah back to the battle. And the scroll that is sent to the commanding officer through Uriah is, hey, when Uriah gets back with this, I want you to put him on the front line of battle where the battle is the fiercest. Why, why is he doing this? Because plan A and plan B doesn't work, so now if I could just kill him, I'll take Bathsheba as one of my wives and nobody will be the wiser. So that's what he does. Commanding officer doesn't question. He does what he's told. But he can't just send Uriah out there because the note said from King David, advance to the fiercest part, but when you get to a certain point, everybody else back up and leave Uriah out there to die. That's what it says. It's, it's like, all right, who wants to step forward? And everybody steps back, right? And you look around, you realize, oh, shoot, I'm the only one left standing. That's kind of what they did. But it's not what they did. The commanding officer couldn't see doing that without there being suspicion. And so at the fiercest point of battle near the walls of this city, there are stones coming down and fiercest part of the battle and several men lose their lives all because of the king's sin. Do you see what sin does? When it's, sin is bad enough when it's committed, but sin begets sin begets sin if it's not confessed and dealt with which causes more and more tragedy, more and more pain, more and more sorrow. And so the commanding officer sends a letter back saying, Uriah is dead. This is what happened in battle. Several other men died. And King David could have been furious about it, but he's like, oh, well, at least my problem's fixed. If it took a few other men to die to cover my sin, then so be it. So now David has taken Bathsheba as his wife. And so within those nine months, nobody's the wiser except God sees all, knows all, is very present. And he tells the prophet Nathan, hey, I need you to go talk to David. It's time. Now Nathan, as a prophet of God, has to go speak sometimes very hard truths to people in power. And he knows if he does that, he risks his own life because guess what? Prophets could be killed by the king and at the king's leisure if he wanted to. But let's pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. But the poor man owned nothing but this one little lamb that he had bought. 
He raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate. It drank from his cup, cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from the abundance of his own flocks, now I added the abundance, but just to give the context, because this guy had a ton of livestock. Instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, guess what he does? He takes the poor man's lamb and he kills it and prepares it for his guest. So now Nathan's telling him the story And David's listening. He's on the edge of his seat. And David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one that he stole and for having no pity. See, when we live a life of purity and integrity, we don't have to fear of being caught in a trap. So David is being sucked in in a creative way by the story from Nathan. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. The Lord God, the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you as king of Israel and I saved you from the power of Saul. How many years? Most scholars believe is about 8 to 10, if not 12 years, that David ran from Saul before he ascended the throne. I saved you from the hands of Saul, David. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more, David. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and you've stolen his wife. So from this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says, because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this thing happen to you openly and in sight of all of Israel. God's not fair, is he? Well, actually, if God is perfect and righteous... He is fair more than we can ever conceive. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. And you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. What child? The child conceived in Bathsheba. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife, just newly born at this point. 
David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and he laid all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. And then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill, they said. What drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is actually dead? And when David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he's dead. Then David got up off the ground, washed himself, put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and he worshipped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and he ate. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you've stopped your mourning and are eating again? That's not how we do things around here. We mourn when somebody dies, not when they're alive. And David replied, I fasted and I wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live but why should I fast when he's dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he can't return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and he slept with her. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. There's a lot to unpack there, and I'm going to do it as quickly as I conceivably can today. What I want you to take away from this is this one key point, and that is confession of sin allows peace to take root in a person's life. How do we know that based on this passage of Scripture? Well, the first thing is we've got to look at confrontation. Confrontation oftentimes leads to confession. Not all the time, but confrontation should lead, I'm sorry, to correction. So remember what does Nathan say? He gives this story. David becomes furious. Then Nathan says, aha, I gotcha. You're the man. Now, when Saul was confronted with his sin on a couple occasions that we're aware of in the Old Testament books of 1 Samuel, what does Saul do? He makes up excuses. He justifies his behavior. Both instances that we have recorded, he makes excuses for his own behavior. Now, does that mean David, after confessing, is better than Saul? Not necessarily, but there's a difference here, isn't there? When Saul was confronted with his wrongdoing, he made justification and excuses for his sin. When David was finally confronted, it led to correction and conf confrontation can't do any good unless it leads to correction. Listen, you are the man. And David's response, yes, I am. See, confrontation isn't only hard for the one uh, that is confronted, it's hard for the confrontor, isn't it? How, how many of you have ever had to confront somebody 
in your life. Those of you at home. Now, I know some people feel like they, it seem like they thrive on it. They just are ready to confront out of every gate. But I promise you, there's a point in everyone's life where there's just this discomfort, there's this tension. When I know that I know that I know that I have to go and say something to someone that I know they're probably not going to receive well, it just gets me tied up in knots. It really does. Why do you think maybe our churches in our culture, and maybe even our culture is in as bad a shape as it's in, because we have this idea that it's none of my business to butt myself into other people's business. But if you are a believer in Christ, and you know another believer in Christ, and you see them erring in their ways or stepping off this path that leads to righteousness, which is Christ, is it not our duty to call them out. Yes. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Jesus, or not Jesus. Paul says, it's not my responsibility to judge those outside of the church. But it surely is your responsibility to confront and judge the ones inside of the church. Especially the ones who say, I'm a believer in Jesus. Hallelujah. And then you see them going out and committing adultery and doing this thing and that thing. and That doesn't square, Right? This was happening in the church at Corinth. And Paul says, no, stop it. Address it. And actually, if the person will not be corrected, then cast them out of your fellowship. We can't do that. That's too judgmental. It's too offensive, right? I don't want to offend. Do I? Oh, by the way, side note. September this year. We always do a church-wide campaign. I'm just bracing you for it now. We're going to be doing a series on offense. We're going to be looking at John Bevere's book, The Bait of Satan. And we're going to talk about how the enemy uses offense to drive a wedge between us and God and between us and others. We live in such an ultra-sensitive, hyper-politically correct day and age that everybody gets offended over every little thing, which is one of the reasons why we won't confront. See, the enemy wins out in this game that he tries to set and play. He, he is the prince of this earth, if you will. He has masterfully deceived us into believing that if we confront somebody, then that's judgment. No, confronting isn't judgment. Confront, confrontation is confrontation, which should lead to correction. Judgment is me coming to you and saying, Dave, I can use you an example. You're going to hell. Did you hear it echo? That was, thank you who opened the sound booth if you did that. You're going to hell. There it is again. All right, good. <laughs> Guess what? I can't send Dave to hell. Did you know that? I'm not God. I could tell somebody to go to, but guess what? I'm still not God. Who can do that? A couple of you believe that. A couple of you believe that only God can do that. When I put myself in the role of God is when I become the judge of somebody else. And a lot of people do that. But you're not God. But you are called to judge a person by the fruits they say they are bearing in Christ Jesus. If they are a believer in Christ, then you can say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You say you're a believer in Christ but I see you doing this other thing. What's up? 
And they'll either do one of two things. It's none of your business. Actually, one of three things. None of your business. Or, oh, I'm doing this because of this and because of this and because of this, justifying it. Or they'll say, yeah, it's wrong. I know. And I need help because I don't know how to get out of it. All right. Confrontation leads to correction. Correction should lead to confession. Second Samuel 12, verse 13a, then David confessed, I've sinned against the Lord. Walter Brueggemann writes this, a biblical scholar. Listen to what he says. David's response in verse 13 is remarkable. The fact that he says, I have sinned. We might conclude that David has no option at this point. He only confesses because he's gotten caught, right? Well, let's look. What does he say? Brueggemann goes on to say, he was caught red-handed, and he had to confess, right? So now that's why he confessed. But in fact, he did not have to confess. Consider who he was. A lesser man, perhaps his son Solomon, would not have confessed, but would have eliminated the prophet instead. He would have killed the prophet who confronted him with his own sin. How dare you confront me of such things? Who are you to say that I was wrong? Nathan wasn't there. He didn't see what was happening. It was God through the prophet Nathan who had been revealed the sin in David's life. David could have said it. No, it's, first off, it's none of your business what I do with my private life. And secondly, you're completely wrong. Uriah died in battle. I did the right thing by taking his wife as my wife so that she would have provision and I'm going to raise this son as my own. He could have said that, but he didn't. And that's why this is so remarkable. See, this is one of the things that distinguishes David as a man after God's own heart. It's not that he was perfect. It's that he was willing to admit when he was wrong. And I mean grievously wrong. Okay? So this correction ultimately for David led to confession. The problem occurs when a person not only denies the rebuke and continues to perpetuate a lie in their own lives, but when they become so convinced of their own lie that they can't distinguish between the truth and the lies any longer. And I think that's where Saul was. That's why he was tormented by this spirit, this evil spirit. I think he had become so shut off to God in his life that he began to believe the lies that he concocted in his own life. He began to not only live the lie, but he ate, slept, and breathed the lie, which is why he went after David, because jealousy had also taken root in his life. I see people like this, ladies and gentlemen. We think this is an Old Testament passage. The truth is, I see people go through this same cycle I see our culture going through this same cycle. As the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah claimed in the Old Testament, what becomes the degradation and total deprivation of a culture is when they start to claim that evil is good and good is evil. My kids are going to get embarrassed with me saying this, not because I'm calling them out, but because there's this song out there that was voted song of the year last year. And I've never heard it, but I've been hearing references about it lately because obviously it's back up in the news by Cardi B, and this is on Facebook, so they'll probably shut me down. It's called WAP, 
W-A-P. It is so crude, I can't even utter the words from this stage without defiling myself in this stage. And this is the epitome of feminism and freedom in our culture that we call that good and we celebrate it. What in the world is wrong with us? Even Christians, I know, celebrate this stuff. Do you realize (laughs) this is the quickest track to hell? I'm not a hellfire and brimstone guy, but ladies and gentlemen, there is a line. There is no blurred line in this regard. Evil is evil. It can never be good. But the problem is when the enemy convinces us so much that evil is good, that we believe the lie, we continue to live the lie, that we will not listen to correction. I see a lot of Christians today also doing the same thing, toying with that line. Well, how close can I get without it, without it being bad? When you've already got that mentality, you're already bad. Do you hear what I'm saying? When you've already gotten to the point in your own life where you're trying to find a way to step over the line without doing it, you're already dirty inside. The one who has the Spirit of God living in them takes those thoughts captive, and they release them. The reason I think many of us carry burdens is because we haven't released these things that gum up the works in our lives. It's like a parent who gets frustrated with their kids asking the same, can I have this, 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 this?" over and over and over again to the point where the parent just finally says, okay, whatever you want. (laughs) But we do this as believers in Christ, as we have the enemy that's coming back, you want this, you want this, you want this, you want this, yes, I do, yes, I do, you want this, you want What happened in the garden? Eve, did God really say if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you, excuse me, did God say that if you eat of any of the trees of the garden you'll die? That was the deception. No, 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 God didn't say that. He said if we eat of this tree or even touch it, we'll die. No, no. Well, you know, we have been in the garden for a while and that fruit looks amazing. I mean, we've wanted it, but we knew God said we shouldn't have it. See, God just doesn't want you to have it because if you eat it, you're going to become just like him, knowing both good and evil. Do you think they had a concept of evil? See, this is one of the things we often read into the text, is we give them a bad rap, but they had no knowledge of evil. They had no knowledge of lies or deception. They were naive in the purest sense to the reality of evil. We live with the reality of evil. We've never not known evil. They once knew a time where there was no evil. What does it say they did? They were, they were convinced. Okay, well, either, there's, there's a conflict here. God said don't do it, but you say it's okay. We've never, under, we've never heard a lie or deception before, and it does look good. Okay, we'll take a bite. <laughs> and they take the bite. And it says immediately what happens. Their eyes were open. 
Their eyes were open to the reality of sin, the reality of disobedience, because they had become the perpetrators against God. And what did they do when they heard God coming? They went and hid. There's an ancient Jewish parable that says characters called lie and truth. Now imagine lie being embodied in a person and truth being embodied in a person. So there's this Jewish parable that says one day lie and truth met. And the story goes like this. Lie said to truth, good day, Mrs. Truth. And truth went to check and see if indeed it was a good day. Because <laughs> you don't believe a lie, right? She checked above and didn't see any clouds. Several birds sang and seeing that it was actually a good day, she replied to lie. Good day, Mrs. Lie. Oh, it's a very hot day, said lie. And truth, seeing that lie spoke the truth, relaxed. Lie then invited the truth to bathe in the river. Let's go, let's go swimming. Lie took off her clothes, jumped in the water and said, Come, Mrs. Truth, the water is great. And truth, without doubting lie, took off her clothes and plunged into the water. Lie then quickly got out of the water, dressed in truth's clothing, and left. Truth, however, refused to dress in the clothes of lies and having nothing to be ashamed of, walked naked in the street. However, the people from that town found it easier to accept the lie dressed as truth than the naked truth. Correction should lead to confession and confession always exposes the truth. And when you expose the truth for what it really is, there is freedom. Confession also leads to forgiveness. I, I love this verse because he doesn't deserve it. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. I wish I was there that day when, when Nathan spoke the words to David, yes, you have sinned, but the Lord's forgiven you. Some of the lie of the enemy is that we don't feel forgiven even when we are. See, what did David do? He, he was an accomplice in a murder and an adulterer. Both of those things, according to the Ten Commandments, when you read in the Levitical law, require death. No matter who you are, there is no caveat. Death, only if you're not a king, is not in there. They require death. The law was a, a uh, it, it applied to everyone, no matter your rank or status. Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. He had seen his predecessor die for his sin. The immediate consequence for David's sin, according to the Torah or the law, required death, but there was forgiveness. How often does God extend grace and forgiveness and mercy to those who should be scorned and put to death? How often has he extended grace and forgiveness and mercy to you and me? 
Do you know actions lead to consequences? That's the next point. David had been forgiven of sin. There was true. But God said, there's a series of consequences for your actions. I want you, I'm going to give you a little story. After this point, if, you, if you're not a student of Scripture, you, do, you may not know what happens. So we know from this point on in David's story that his son Ammon would rape David's daughter Tamar because of his desire to have her as his own. David had multiple wives. His son Solomon would have even more. <clears throat> and so half-brother and half-sister. Half-brother rapes half-sister. But now Tamar's full-blooded brother... Absalom hears about it and is incensed. And so now Absalom wants his half-brother Ammon killed for raping his sister, who was also his half-sister. You think West Virginia or Kentucky are bad. <laughs> if you're from West Virginia, or, I'm from Kentucky, so I could put myself in that camp. I married my sister. She hates it when I say that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love you. She really hates it when I say that. I didn't. I love you. I'm just making sure you're still with me. All right. So Absalom now sets the stage with a band of his own guys. And he says, listen, I'm going to get my brother drunk. And when he's drunk, I want you to kill him. Guess what happens? Ammon is killed. Not long after this, because of his resentment toward his father, Absalom did you know that Absalom actually translated from Hebrew means son of peace? Absalom would contend for the throne as king over the nation of Israel. He hates his father. He knows how, despise, how despisable his father is. He's a horrible guy. How could he take somebody else's wife as his own? How could he send Uriah out to be killed? Why isn't he doing something? Why isn't he better than this? I resent you, Dad. I hate you. And so Absalom, who hates his father David, now is trying to overthrow David to take the throne. Guess what happens to David? Just as he did with Saul, he runs. He leaves the palace. He leaves Jerusalem with a band of his own soldiers. And he runs from Absalom, hiding out in valleys and caves the way he did when Saul was after him. Oh, how history repeats itself when we don't learn from it. And David is suffering by the sword for the rest of his life because of his own sin. Yes, God forgave him, but there were consequences to his actions. Sad but true, Absalom was told he was not, this is, it's not funny, but he had these beautiful flowing locks of thick hair. And it said it was super long, he could have been a Nazarite, we don't know. But thick, long, flowing hair. And it says he was riding on his horse and his hair got tangled in the branches of a tree and the horse kept going and he kept dangling by his hair. This is in there, I don't make it up. And his enemies saw him helpless and shot arrows right through his chest and killed him. And David wept bitterly that his son, who had become his enemy, had died. 
Needless to say, David's life was wrought with pain and suffering, marked by the consequences of his own sin and behavior. And most of us live with the consequences of sinful behavior. We've all sinned and we fall short of God's glorious standard. And so whether yours are huge ripples or small ripples, there are still effects of sin in our own lives. Regrets that we have that we wish we hadn't done in the past. But one of the things I am promised, and I know from Scripture, is that God says, I forgive you. And he does this. Are you willing to receive it? I see a lot of people living in bondage because they're not willing to receive the forgiveness. Not because God can't forgive them, but because they can't forgive themselves. And so they continue to perpetuate and live the lie of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy instead of stepping into the abundant life that Jesus Christ came to give because they continue to believe the lie that's perpetuated in their own heart and their own soul because the enemy has got them in his grasp. If the Son has set you free... You're free indeed. And Jesus says, I forgive you. And you can reject the hand. You can spit at it. You can curse it, as many people do. But until you reach out and grab it, you can't be pulled out of the depths of the water, which are drowning you, to be saved. Forgiveness. Last thing leads to peace. Old Testament scholar E.M. Merrill writes, Eventually another son was born to David and Bathsheba, one who bore a double name, Solomon and Jedidiah. I find it interesting that though David's life would forever be changed and marked by the consequences of his own sin, that God in his mercy and forgiveness would allow a blessing to come through the relationship that had started in sin, but redeemed by grace. I have people ask me all the time, can God forgive me for divorce? Can God forgive me for that? Yes. God is an equal opportunity forgiver. He really is. But see, what it, what it takes to receive that forgiveness is to step into it. And to not, you cannot, here's the funny, here, no, it's not funny. Here's the interesting thing is, when you open yourself up, to the forgiveness that God gives, and you step into it, do you know you can't step into it and carry stuff into it? Do you understand that? When you step into God's forgiveness and full surrender, that means full surrender. I'm letting everything go in order to step into this. See, this is why the, the writer of Hebrews says when we receive Christ, we can step into the, bowl, the, the, the throne room of grace with confidence. Why? Because there's nothing holding us back. We cut all ties to sin and the past and all that. We may be living with the consequences of our behavior. There are people in the jail cells today or in prisons that are living with the consequences of their behavior but are probably more saved than most of us because they've fully stepped into this reality of forgiveness and said, I'm a horrible, despicable person, and yet Christ loved me and gave himself for me. What more can I do but just to believe that and step into it fully and completely? Which leads to peace. Do you know what Solomon means? I love this. It means peaceful. So Absalom was a son of peace, 
but quite frankly, was anything but. And I find it interesting. There's nothing coincidental in God's kingdom. That God would bless David and Bathsheba with a relationship that wasn't meant to be, but had been redeemed. And God said, I want you to name him Solomon. Peaceful. (laughs) How powerful is the peace of God which passes understanding. David didn't deserve that. Well, God killed his first kid. Okay, I want you to stop for a minute because I've, I've heard the arguments. God killed his first, he wouldn't let the first, the kid did nothing. I hear a lot of people scoff at that passage. There's a difference in God taking the child and a human taking a child. Do you hear me? God has every right to bring a child home to be with him. We do not. For the sake of convenience or any other reason. And that's hard to chew on. But the reality is all life is sacred because God created it. God knit us together in our mother's wombs. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. God is justified in all his actions, whether they seem fair to us or not, because always, always God is good. The, the, the difficulty is looking at the goodness of God through the lens of the earth and the world's standards. We don't see it as good oftentimes because we don't have the perspective that God has. But if we had this heavenly perspective and this kingdom perspective of God, we might be able to see a little bit more clearly. Again, I go back to this passage in 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul says, Now we see through a glass dimly, but then we will see clearly. We will know fully as we are fully known. God, I don't understand why you do certain things you do, why you allow certain things you allow, but I believe you're good and I trust you. And then God does something and he shows us the reality that he's still there, he's still doing good works, and he brings about this son who is oodles of potential. And blesses the heart of David and Bathsheba with Solomon. And not that the the other child was any less important. But imagine where that child was seven days after, after it had been born and then died. See, we we can't view the reality of heaven and we think how horrible that is, but that child is with the Lord. That child doesn't have to live under the stressors of the rest of this world. There's there's some mercy in that action of God that I don't think we often get to see or we don't often take note of. Again, that doesn't give us the liberty to do those things, but he can do what he wishes because he's good. Let me close with this as our worship team comes forward. How many of you are familiar by the uh, pastor, author, Eugene Peterson? 
He wrote the message, or actually translated from the original languages into what we call a modern-day paraphrase of Scripture, and you either love it or you hate it, and you may be one of those haters here, so don't dismiss what I'm about to read to you about Eugene Peterson, but listen to this. Eugene Peterson wrote other books, and in his book, Run With Horses, he tells the story of his frustration trying to remove the blade from his lawnmower. Have you ever tried to remove the blades from your lawnmower? It's not fun. So he writes, to be told that we're wrong is sometimes an embarrassment, even a humiliation. We want to run and hide our heads in shame, but there are times when finding out that we're wrong is sudden and immediate relief, and we can lift up our heads in hope. No longer do we have to keep doggedly trying to do something that isn't working, a few years ago, he writes, now he's since passed on, but a few years ago, he writes, I was in my backyard with my lawnmower tipped up on its side. I was trying to get the blade off so I could sharpen it. I had my biggest wrench attached to the nut, and I couldn't budge it. I had a four-foot length of pipe slipped on over the edge of the wrench handle to give me leverage, and I learned that it still wouldn't work. Next, I took a large rock and I began banging on the pipe. But by this time, I was beginning to get emotionally involved with my lawnmower. <laughs> and then my neighbor walked over and said that he had a lawnmower like mine once and that if he remembered correctly, the threads on the bolt went the other way. <laughs> he says, I humbly reversed my exertions and sure enough, turned very easily. I was glad to find out that I was wrong, he says. I was saved from frustration and failure. I would never have gotten the job done, no matter how hard I tried doing it my way. It's super embarrassing when we find out we're doing something wrong or when we've done something wrong or when we know we've done something wrong. But it's even more embarrassing when we know we're doing the things that we shouldn't do and we refuse to admit it. Confession requires humility and admitting that we're wrong. Confession should happen before we're found out by somebody else, like a Nathan in our lives. It's a lot easier to take ownership of our mistakes and our sinful behavior on our own than it is to be found out and have to admit it because there's no other way. But oh, the freedom that comes to our souls when we release the burden of sin that has been weighing us down and the baggage that we, we carry on our backs that trips us up. It's time to stop going in the wrong direction. It's time to stop beating that pipe on the wrench. It's time to do things God's way and realize that his ways are always best. I, I plead every week. I feel like a beggar up here sometimes. But I know some of you are carrying weight. I pray you released it earlier. But if you're still feeling the soul-wrenching, crushing weight of the world, it's time to find peace. Those of you at home, you have couches and chairs you can kneel beside. 
let it go. Allow God to do something wonderful in your life. As believers in Christ, we should be the most joyful, peaceful persons on the face of the earth. We should be so attractive with the love, joy, peace, patience, kind of all of the fruit of the Spirit living and produced freely in our lives that it becomes refreshing to others we come in contact with. The sad truth is we seem oftentimes like the most miserable people in the world. We don't have to make ourselves attractive to others. It's Christ in us who does that. I'm going to pray over you today. Father, break every chain, every amount of bondage in this place. Those who are slaves to sin or past experiences or hatred or unforgiveness, those who are slaves to addiction, those who are slaves to their past and the mistakes they've made, the choices they've made that they knew even at the time were wrong, remind them the story of David in the offering of forgiveness. Remind them that it just takes them reaching out and receiving. I pray that you would lift the burdens today. That as people surrender to you, that your Holy Spirit would not only sweep through this place like a mighty rushing wind, but God would liberate the body of Christ in this place to good works and actions in our community, that we would truly be light and salt in a way that you've called us to be without anything hindering or holding us back or any sin that so easily entangles and trips us up. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us? Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.